This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is our capstone session for the Atlantic Meets the Pacific. I am really interested for what we're going to be hearing in the next few minutes from our, our panelists to review Over the past day and a half, we've heard about innovations in cancer. We've heard about innovations in individualized medicine and in mobile technology and in socially useful technology and in drones and essentially anything else in in, in food production and in disease, uh, public health. And each of these, I will say personally, has made me so grateful beyond the normal level to be in La Jolla right now and not my normal home of D.C., where we have not simply the general positivism of the West Coast, you know, renowned through, uh, through lore and cliché, but also a sense of things where the future looks brighter, as opposed to stagnant, divided, polarized, etc. I'll, I'll say, too, just 30 seconds more on, on a frame of mind I'm bringing to this. A project I've been doing in the last couple of months for the Atlantic with my wife is flying around the country in our little plane, going to small towns with interesting technological, economic, manufacturing, civic culture uh, renaissances, and it's so fascinating to contrast that healthy texture of American life in its uh, sort of granular, granular level with the, uh, with the political national level crisis we have. So this is, this is similar in being positive and dealing with some really, um, some really important questions. So what we're going to do now, we have three experts in different, although complementary aspects of the brain, a fundamental um, in, uh, importance to all of us. Starting on my far left, we have sorry, Ralph Greenspan, who's the director of the Center for Brain Activity Mapping here at UCSD. Next to him, we have Chris Fahm, who's the, uh, the, the head of the Bioelectronics Research and Discovery Unit at GlaxoSmithKline here from England at the, at the moment. And we have Nicholas Spitzer, who's a distinguished professor of neurobiology and the co-director of the Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind here at UC San Diego. And at least two of our panelists, even this morning, were involved in state politics about trying to uh, make the Brain Initiative an even more important California uh, project. What I'd like to do as a way to start is have each of you briefly frame where we are in the state of understanding the, the brain. And by, here's what I mean. If you think of the history of aviation over the last 150 years, we went from balloons to the Wright brothers to space, and there are different paths there. Think of microelectronics. We see how the last, what the last 50 years have, have, have meant. We can think of the, the genome project. By that kind of metric, where are we historically in understanding the brain, what we know and what we have still to know? Let me start with you, Ralph. Well... I think that it's important to realize that life science evolves just as much as it studies things that evolve, and that the second half of the 20th century was the period of discovering what biological things are made of, the parts list, which reached its apotheosis with the genome project. We understand now what proteins are, we understand what uh, nucleic acid is, we know what are the components of the cell, and we have a very good idea of what many of them do in a, in a very speci- in their specialized sense. I think the 21st century is going to be the era of understanding how it all fits together. And the fact being that what part of what makes us so interesting is that we're not merely a sum of our parts. The, the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. And, and understanding them takes more than just knowing what they are and what they do in isolation. 
So what would that be an analogy to in the history of, of, uh, of invention? Um, it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I'm tempted to say it's somewhat like the invention of the steam engine mm-hmm. and that it's the beginning of a real driver for how all of this is going to be, uh, is going, uh, it's going to be possible with tremendous potential. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if that's the best analogy. Great, thanks. Chris, um, how, how do you cast this time in history? I think I'll build on what um, Ralph said here about the, the building blocks being there. Building blocks are something that actually only makes sense when it is together, right? The, the building blocks for a brain being neurons aren't that excited, don't really make up the brain uh, in, in small parts. So for your analogy about airplanes, it's probably like you've got the, the right brothers and you've got all the pieces of airplane laid out in front of you, but the plane hasn't flown yet. <laughs> So excitement is ahead yeah. right, over the next, next century. So how would you cast this time? I think, it's a, uh, as uh, both Chris and Ralph have said, it's a tremendously exciting time. Uh, and I, I think here one remembers that progress in science is often driven by the development of new tools. Mm. Uh, and what's particularly exciting now at the beginning of the 21st century is that we have coming together uh, a, a, the, the enthusiasm and the drive and the sense of what the problems are on the part of the neuroscientists and the cognitive scientists and psychologists, and then we have engineers, uh, nanoengineers, bioengineers, electrical engineers, computer engineers, and chemists and pharmacologists who are building new tools. Uh, and, and the combination of these new tools, I think, with the uh, clear definition of the problems to be tackled, uh, I think are leading to uh, a, a, a revolution. Ralph pointed to the Industrial Revolution uh, there. I think another way of thinking about this is at, at the Renaissance, uh, where all of a sudden there was a huge blossoming of understanding, uh, of appreciation. Uh, and here I think we will all appreciate to a much greater level, 10, 20 years from now, exactly what the brain does and how it does it. And I'm going to change the order for this, this next question. Of course, we've all heard about the brain initiative that's been, been launched at the national level by, by President Obama, the work you're doing here in, in, in mapping. Tell us why this matters and what, uh, what it will do. Let's start, start with you. I think it matters in a host of ways. Uh, one of these is simply to satisfy our fundamental curiosity about how the brain works. If you ask any of the three of us now, how does creativity work? What is uh, fueling imagination? How do we uh, take something simpler? How do we make decisions? What, what is going on when I have a particular emotion in our brain? We have the most rudimentary understanding of these processes. Uh, uh, the the uh, uh, European Brain Project uh, across the Atlantic, uh, the uh, Brain Initiative here in the United States, uh, the Center for Brain Activity Mapping here on the campus, I think will give us insights uh, into these important uh, questions. And and, uh, Ralph, let me ask you, can you you describe about what is actually going to happen with these initiatives? How how is the mapping going to work? Well, it's uh, something that requires a great deal of technical progress before it can really before it can be realized. We, we have very good techniques for measuring what individual nerve cells do. We have very good techniques for measuring what a relatively small group of them can do. Uh, when you want to go to a higher level, all we can do is see in a very crude way the sort of slow, cumulative, general patterns in the brain. What we need to be able to do is see the quick, fast, very high, high-grained resolution activity in the brain. 
And to get there is still a major technical leap. It's going to require new sensors, new ways of reporting out from deep tissue, new ways of being able to monitor and put together initially thousands, eventually millions, and maybe ultimately billions of parallel streams of information. And then having some kind of a theoretical framework to try to make sense of it, because at that scale, you're not going to be able to stare at it and see a pattern. And I'm asking you in a second, Chris, about your work, but just to follow up here, I assume that a lot of this work cannot be sensibly done from mice or zebrafish or even, even chimpanzees. How are you able to use actual human brains to do the mapping you're talking about? Well, in fact, the problems for how to get there will be solved in all of those smaller animals. <laughs> and the model for this is the Genome Project, where what was the first genome to be done? It was bacter- a bacterial cell. And then use, once you got up to larger scale organisms, it was the fruit fly, my, my favorite experimental system. <laughs> it's what I work on. It's been the workhorse of genetics for 100 years. Uh, they solved this problems of how to assemble a genome from the parts uh, with the fruit fly. It worked like a charm with humans. Now, whether you can go in one step like that in the brain is not quite so likely. But you will have to go stepwise and see for even an animal as small as the mouse, you can't see through the brain. How do you get the signals out and still see comprehensively what's happening? That's where you'll solve the problem. And then, eventually, you get up to a larger brain. Then you have to make sure that it's not going to be harmful to the brain to get these things (laughs) in there to map it. I'm not about to stick electrodes in my head if I don't have to, or to put all these little nanoparticles in there that we have great faith will make it possible to see these things. So there are many steps that have to be gone through. I'm going to volunteer myself as a research candidate. As Steve Clemens mentioned last night, I have, I think, a record-high quotient of Neanderthal ancestry. So if you want to have kind of old-style brains, you know where to come. So, so um, Chris, you are doing a parallel but different kind of work. Explain the significance of the, the electro-neural work that you're doing. Yeah, so we are also very interested in the nervous system, but our predominant focus is on the periphery, on the small specific nerves that go to virtually every organ throughout our bodies and that control the organs and control important aspects of disease. So these are things like control of the spleen, the mm-hmm. kidney, the colon, the small intestine, the lungs, and the list goes on and on. Those organs that are centered in so many of our chronic diseases. So for, as, as a pharmaceutical company, for decades we have made good progress in tackling chronic diseases through molecular medicines. And that's what we've spoken a lot mm-hmm. about during the last few days, yeah. right? The nervous system is another fundamental axis of control for biology. It it exerts control of every corner of of our body. And and thanks to the sort of tools that that Ralph described, uh, and Nick, we are now on the verge of being able to tap into those neural circuits, literally tap into them and record the signals that flow through them and in the future modulate those signals with precision. We, we, We will be able to one day speak that electrical language in the wires that control our organs. And what would be the nearest term example you can think of or where you'd have some therapeutic effect through this kind of peripheral modulation, as you say? We think that is going to come in uh, diseases that are in the gut uh, or in organs in the gut. For example, inflammation, 
where the spleen plays a very important role, and the, the signals that flow through the splenic nerve uh, are directly correlated with the level of systemic inflammation you get. Uh, but also things like blood pressure, uh, things like asthma, when your airways constrict, mm. that's a very neural yep. event. It's a reflex that you can break, and if you can devise right. something that sort of records the signals and in real time blocks yeah, it, that'd be very exquisite. Yes. So Chris is talking, I asked Chris to talk about some of the, the, the therapeutic aspects. I understand the fundamental mapping uh, work you're doing is basic science, but if you think of some of the main areas of brain-related concerns and trauma now, from traumatic brain injury to Alzheimer's to, um, to autism or whatever, give us a sense of the time horizons on which you imagine your research leading to some kind of um, useful therapy in those realms. Uh, so, so uh, Nicholas, why don't you start? Yeah, uh, this is always very difficult, Jim. To uh, <laughs> that's why I ask you. You're in, the expert <laughs> in, in terms of uh, uh, setting benchmarks and, yeah. and, and making projections. And I think one of the lessons that we learned from the Human Genome Project uh, was that we should not overpromise uh, the outcomes. Remember, uh, the promise was we were going to fully understand human disease once we had sequenced the human genome, and yet. Of course, now the human genome is fully sequenced, and we're a long way off still from that, that very important goal. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that over the next uh, 10 years, maybe, maybe more, 20 years, we're going to see dramatic improvements uh, in our understanding of the, of the basis of these neurodegenerative disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, for example, uh, and, and that's going to lead to improvement in, in treatment modalities. This will come about in at least two ways. One is through the enhancement of existing technologies. So uh, diagnosis, early diagnosis is critical for treatment of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Uh, right now we have a way to diagnose these disorders, but it's typically pretty late on when the disorder is pretty far advanced, and so our ability to treat it is rather modest. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a, a commitment of the BRAIN uh, initiative to ramp up those detection methods so that we can understand and, and then move on to treatment at an early point. Second, uh, there will be the new tools that, that has talked about and that, and that Chris is developing with his colleagues. Uh, uh, and these new tools will provide us uh, ways we cannot yet predict. And so the timeline for that moves a little uh, more into the gray zone. Uh, but I think uh, um, much as uh, we've been able to deliver on the human genome project in other ways, much as the stem cell initiative has, is now beginning to show very interesting promise, I think the, the brain initiative will be very productive as well. And Ralph? Well, <clears throat> there are actually some near-term benefits that I think are likely also that, are, that, that don't require us to be able to see the entire brain, but simply to expand what we can now do incrementally. Many of you have probably heard of these mechanical arms that can be driven by a person's thoughts that are now being used to treat people who are paralyzed, uh, either from stroke or injury or other, or other disease, where with a surface electrode on the, uh, that's on the brain, they can train themselves just through feedback thought to drive a, a mechanical arm. And there's a very famous case in, in, in Rhode Island at Brown University, our colleague John Donahue, where a patient who was quadriplegic drank a cup of coffee by herself for the first mm. time. Wow. They now rely on, the, on, on being able to monitor about 100 neurons, 100 nerve cells, to, to make those work. The, 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 the drawback of that is that it takes the person a long time to train themselves to do it, and the level of control is not very fine. 
What John tells me is that if they can up that number to 1,000 neurons, which is still not a very large area of the brain, so we're not talking about something dramatically different, he said that would make the ability for someone to learn it be much faster and the fine level of control much greater. I'd like to ask each of you a combination of a public and a private question. The public question is related to this latest government shutdown, which I'm not inviting you to comment on, but the largest question of, of whether the U.S. and other developed countries are investing enough in this kind of research and how the, public, uh, how the uh, corporate um, state interaction works. The private question I'd like each of you to address is, we're all concerned about our brains. We've talked at this conference about things, ways people can live differently, to live more in a more healthy fashion. Is there any way you can live healthier in, term, in neurological functions? Um, let me start with you. The, uh, these, are, these are fascinating questions. I've had the pleasure of uh, traveling to meetings uh, around the world, most recently a few months ago to China, to Hangzhou near Shanghai, to give some lectures and establish collaborations with people there. And I have to say I was stunned by the level of financial support for scientific research in the People's Republic of China. These people are moving very quickly. And uh, in contrast, as, as you point out, Jim, with the situation uh, here at home with the National Institutes of Health and other federal funding agencies, uh, one uh, has some concerns about how this will uh, uh, go in the future. Uh, so uh, increasingly, we turn to uh, foundations. We turn to... Uh, uh, in the our present case, the state of California, uh, as you know, the state of California was wonderfully supportive of the development of uh, Cal IT2, the, the Qualcomm Institute, where we are meeting uh, today, this afternoon. Uh, and so we're very hopeful that they will be able to see the benefit uh, for the great state of California of supporting the Brain Initiative and the Center for Brain Activity Mapping. And living healthier in a brain Living healthier way. is terribly important. <laughs> I'm the editor-in-chief of a public-facing website, Brain facts.org, we try to uh, educate the public about the brain and also how to have a healthy brain. Two things stand out, and I'm sure you all know them. Uh, the <laughs> issue is, do we really pay enough attention to them? One is diet, and the other is exercise. Uh, and we know how to be careful about both, but sometimes we stray. Uh, and so I, I, this would be an encouragement to all of you yeah. to uh, hew the line here. It's quite important. So Chris, could you talk about the public-private um, partnerships in, in, in research and also any healthy living tips you have? Well, healthy living tips. So let, let's get back to that one. Um, <laughs> Public-private. I've been very encouraged across, across the world of uh, the enthusiasm and the many initiatives that are now coming off. Um, we see here in the US the Brain Initiative in Europe, there's one of two big flagship projects called the Human Brain Project, I think we've heard to before. It's a billion euros over 10 years. Uh, I came from Japan before I was here, there, Singapore, China and so on. There's a lot of buzz. Now that needs to be actually translated to to proper funding and concrete projects among our scientists that brings it forward. And, and, and that is a challenge, but I'm hopeful that there will be resourcing. And I'm hopeful also that there will be the, the public-private link-up. We are working, all, all our work from the research unit that I lead at GSK mm -hmm. are actually happening in academic groups uh -huh. at the moment. Yeah. We've partnered with 10 different universities around the world over just the last couple of months, and we're seeking another 10 here before the end of the year. Uh, this mapping of the nervous system and turning that map into therapeutic interventions is something that I think both uh, 
is hugely motivating for academic researchers and something that we can then translate into real health benefits. So I think this could be a really good place for public-private collaboration. Great. And so, Ralph, let me ask you either any healthy brain living tips or you can tell about what you were doing this morning testifying before the California legislators about how the state can advance these initiatives. I get my choice. You get your choice or both. Or both. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Well, I have, I have something for both. Uh, first of all, healthy brains. Well, if my wife were here, she would, she would be happy that I'm going to talk about synchronized swimming because she does it. She used it to uh, actually partly as a rehabilitation from a, from a car accident uh, injury. Um, uh, and she is convinced that the process of strict memorization coupled with exercise and movement control is the best therapy for, for, for the brain. And we've been to these national competitions where we've run into neurologists who are synchronized swimmers and who are trying to mount a clinical trial to show that this is true. Because motor learning is, they are, they they also believe is the most effective way to maintain memory as we age. I would love to see the Venn diagram of neurologists and synchronized swimmers. <laughs> I guess there is so, some overlap. You, you'd be surprised who you meet at these things, including 90-year-olds who are still doing it. Wow. As far as um, what we were doing this morning, the Senate Majority Leader of the California State Senate. Ellen Corbett came down here to hold a hearing on the Brain Initiative because she had read that San Diego had been a real hotspot for the origin of this initiative. Uh, I was one of the people to be originally involved in proposing it, as was Terry Sanofsky, my colleague here, who's also at the Salk Institute, and that California in general provided the majority of the people in our initial core group has provided a very large number of the technologies that are going into it. And the state is thinking about wanting to support this effort in some fashion, as they have done many times in the past, as with the stem cell initiative, the CalIT2 initiative, nanotechnology, and, and, and many other examples like that. So we did our best to um, reinforce her uh, growing interest in this. So I'm going to queue up one last question for all of you, then I'll turn this over to the panel because I imagine everybody has a lot of questions to ask. And I'll set up the question this way. In any field of endeavor, there's something that everybody inside it knows and people outside it don't. For example, anybody who's worked in politics, anybody worked on political campaigns here, you realize that the main explanation for most of what happens is fatigue. People are tired all the time, and that just explains a lot. And, and it's, yeah, that's not really understood in the general public. Second, many people here are, are pilots, as I am. You recognize that passengers pay a lot of attention to the landing, which actually is, doesn't matter very much. There are many harder things that go on in the flight. In your realm, what's the main thing people in your world know that you wish the rest of us understood? I'll start with you. Uh, let's see. I think uh, one of the things that we all know uh, is that uh, the um, 100 billion neurons in each of our brains are uh, specifically connected to other neurons, other nerve cells uh, in these uh, circuits, and it is these circuits that uh, fundamentally control uh, what, what we do uh, in life. 
but what I think is not appreciated uh, is the uh, flexibility of those circuits. Now, we, 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 again, we all know that when we learn or memorize something, that there's a physical change somewhere in our brains, uh, uh, and, and that uh, the connections get stronger or weaker, for example, and that's uh, learning or forgetting in a very general sense. Uh, but I think people do, uh, don't, don't understand yet, because this is really on the cusp of current discovery, that those uh, uh, that wiring system can be reconfigured either on a short-term basis over short periods of time or on a long-term basis uh, over time, for example, in the cases in which individuals with stroke, losing part of their brain, can actually recover functions that were uniquely in that part of the brain but are now uh, uh, parceled out into some other part. Uh, so there's a, a, a lot for us to convey, and, and certainly on brainfacts.org, we're trying to get, get these words out. And my, my wife, has, who's a linguist, has a theory that you can keep learning languages throughout your life and, and demonstrating that, that principle. So, Chris, what, what do you wish people understood about the world in which you work? Yeah, I'd like to draw a connection to some of the talks we heard here earlier during these last few days. It's been a lot of talk about big data and, and using data in a smart way to enable better health care, to have more precision in treatments and so on. I think that the really interesting idea here is, is that the the data, the, the neural signaling patterns can actually be the treatment itself. So we're not talking about sort of enabling stuff here. This, this, the patterns, the electrical signals are the treatment. So, so explain, right? explain that thought. So, so when we say we want to make bioelectronic medicines, we're not saying that we want to use neural recording and then release normal drug mm -hmm. molecules. We're saying we want to use the electrical impulses mm -hmm as a treatment. Mm. So the data that, that Nick and Ralph and others will be recording in the Brain Initiative, if we get that right, if we figure out what the, the signatures are that are associated with health and disease, mm. that mm. very same data is actually the treatment. Mm. That's right. Absolutely right. I understand. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Ralph, your, your turn. I think that the, the, the atmosphere that we try to describe to people that is so hard to convey is that the most important things that happen in science are not things that you foresee. They're not predictable. They're serendipitous. Hmm. You didn't know that that's what was going to come out of it. You didn't know where that idea was going to come from. You didn't know what chance interaction is going to spark it. And, and the, the, the thing that needs to be appreciated is that the most important breakthroughs come from research that's not aimed at the final problem that it ends up solving. The application is for the things that are the most powerful and most profound we're not a straight line set of predictable steps which means that if you don't have a healthy environment for un, for, for undirected discovery you don't have major breakthroughs period end of sentence that, that, that is important, and it resonates with me in the much less consequential world of journalism, which I, I, I work, which is that it's always the things you didn't know you were looking for until you went there that, that, that matter. And so if you have a structure in either in straightened journalism or, or restricted science, that, that uh, can cut off some of the most important things. Let me now invite questions from the audience. I think there are. Do we have the, mic the microphone procedure? So people will come around with microphones, and I'll, call, I'll start with you, and then I would like the microphone bearers to choose who will be the subsequent Questions? Questioners? Uh, my name's uh, George Skaljak, and um, I have a question. Uh, what vitamin can I take that will assist my brain health? I know they talked about uh, uh, eating healthy and exercise, but like lutein is good for the 
eyes what uh, vitamin might be helpful for my brain. Yes. There's a danger here, uh, I, I think, and, and I illustrate this, as does my wife, uh, in that we think that it's just you know, uh, 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 gluten or vitamin D or possibly vitamin K uh, that we need to take, and then everything will be great. Uh, and th- there's a couple of dangers there. One is that we then take too much of this in the, it, with the enthusiasm that if a little is good, more will be better. Uh, not, of course, uh, really the case. Uh, and then we also get into a situation in which we are out of balance with other uh, vitamins. So uh, tough as it is, the best recipe uh, is, as our mothers told us, uh, to eat healthy uh, 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 and uh, uh, less red meat, more fish, uh, more fruits and vegetables. uh, And that integrated over years and decades, of course, is really what's going to drive our good health. Now, the the best news for people in my age bracket, I'm 70, uh, uh, is that it's never too late to start, uh, uh, and that the ability of the body to uh, repair itself after many decades of, of uh, abuse uh, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's time for us all to take this to heart. I, I think there'll be great benefits. Sort of the deathbed confession equivalent of uh, uh, any of you agree? So, yes, a question. Uh, who has a microphone here? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Wyvern Aswat, uh, UCSD postback program. And today you all have spoken a lot about uh, just how brain imaging can help a lot with neurological disorders. I was wondering if you can speak up uh, a bit about how this new technology can also help us understand psychiatric disorders. Yeah, it is going to be crucial for that because it has become increasingly clear that disorders like schizophrenia and autism and bipolar disorder and so on are brain-wide diseases. They're not things that happen in some little corner of the brain. And if you only could identify that little corner and fix it, you'd have it set. The most, the, all the complex and sophisticated things that we do involve these brain-wide circuits, these brain-wide patterns of activity, and those are what have gone awry in those diseases. At this point, we hardly even know what actually has gone on in those diseases at that level. We couldn't even tell. All we know is very, very crudely from uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging. It's not telling us enough. So even just to understand the disease and then to be able to have an idea how one might restore balance in ways that Chris has referred to uh, and, and others as well, more traditional, that can be done once you have a picture of it. But it's essential to get that picture. Would either of you like to add to that or, or not? Yeah. I, I think that's right on the money. I, I think these are really global disorders, and this ability that we're going to be working toward now to, uh, with the new tools, massively record from large numbers of neurons, uh, uh, and as, as you're doing, Chris, to, to uh, stim- record and then stimulate uh, large numbers of neurons. I think uh, this really offers us hope for a, a more f- uh, effective therapy. And, Chris, does your signal-as-solution model apply to psychiatric um, phenomena too? I think it will one day. Uh, to be honest, I also think it's the most complex mm-hmm. of a lot of diseases, right? Sure. So that's why we need to learn from simpler neural circuits right. to eventually one day, and this might be the ultimate goal in a way, right? Be able to, to address brain-wide diseases. I'm, I'm Malcolm. How do you correlate the pharmacological solutions that schizophrenia and some of these people take and, and get some level of chemical balance uh, with, 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 with what you just said in terms of 
being complicated, and I'm not questioning your answer. I'm just wondering how you br- we, we bring about some level of equilibrium, but yet we're ways away from a, a, an organic solution. Yes, yeah, so what, what, the, what the drugs that have some effect do is they, they, they modulate chemical systems in the brain that are very important in general and particularly important in those diseases. And it was a major breakthrough in schizophrenia research some 30 years ago when it was determined that the molecules in the brain that those drugs act upon are very important in it. That has helped a lot. Those are short, relatively short-term solutions. People who go on those drugs cannot take them for very long. They start to develop very severe side effects. This is frequently the problem with psychotropic drugs. So what that tells us is that, yes, that system is important. What it also tells us is that it is by no means the only answer, and there are severe limitations even to how much of an effect the current drugs can have on that system. I would say we're struggling here because, uh, as as Ralph pointed out, these uh, pharmacological treatments are only partially effective, side effects, deep brain stimulation, we're familiar with, very expensive, again, works some of the time, not all the time, cognitive therapy, so-called talk therapy, works some of the time, not all the time, we're floundering. We really just don't understand the disorder. We need to have that fundamental understanding of how the disease works. I think we have a question back here, and then, then probably you're next to the microphone here. Yes. Hi, my name is Flori Brazell. I'm a, a writer. I was just wondering if any of you had anything to share with us about epilepsy. It's a major problem, and it's not one problem. Uh, epilepsy, of course, involves seizure activity in the brain. There are many ways in which seizure activity can come about in the, in, in the brain. Uh, And it's much as we've come to appreciate that autism is not one thing. It's an autism spectrum with a variety of of related uh, disorders. Um, uh, We we need to think about epilepsy in the same way. We're probably further along in our understanding of epilepsy than we are in terms of other disorders because it's been possible at the times of surgical treatment to actually record with uh, arrays of electrodes uh, uh, in the brain. Uh, But there are many ways in which uh, epilepsies can arise, uh, and we need to understand those better in order to be able to treat the uh, disorder better. I think we have a question here. I think we have time for two more questions, so you are one of two. Joe Weiss, a quick question. We focus a lot on disease. How about on normal neuroprocesses, learning? Do you think there's an opportunity here to amplify the ability to learn, pick up a language (laughs) in a matter of an overnight session? Yes. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. One of, the, one of the very major benefits that can come out of this increased ability to see what goes on in the brain is actually to see what happens when we learn something. And when we learn something particularly uh, that's complex or abstract, what does an abstraction look like in the brain? That is a, this, is, this is a question that Descartes would have loved to know the answer to. <laughs> in fact, it would have upset him tremendously, actually, to know that that was the answer. But that would tell us a great deal. It will make it much more feasible to fine-tune the ways we teach, the ways we study. All of those things are open, open for this. I'm going to use my prerogative to hog on with a brief follow-up here. My observation of the world of sort of physical ability is at the low end if you're profoundly handicapped or at the high end if you are Usain Bolt. There are things, there are inboard differences, but that with it, for 95% of people, they can, they can do, everybody can sort of perform to a certain level. In terms of mental ability, 
my view is some people are, are unfortunately handicapped, some people are Albert Einstein, but most people, their potential is much higher than they realize. Is that what actual brain science thinks too? I, I think that's certainly what I think, and I think that's what you, you were saying, Ralph. I, Chris, what's your sense? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, so we all can we, do better. We have, we have more potential. Yes. Yeah. So, and then, uh, can I, just yes. one quick comment on, in terms of learning and augmenting learning. I think we can learn a lot about learning, no pun intended, but we should be really careful when it comes to interventions to not start on the augmenting side. Probably never go to the augmenting side, frankly. The, the the, uh, for so many diseases. <laughs> that, and and that, that's what we as sort of a research community need, need to sort of hold hands on, I think. Yes. We have a microphone in the back, I believe. Uh, where, who has a microphone? I have, uh, yes. I have a question. I'm Tiffany Fox with the Qualcomm Institute yeah. here. And my question sort of follows up, follows up on what you just mentioned. If circuitry is flexible, is it possible that we might enhance the brain for things like extrasensory perception or ways that the brain doesn't currently function? This is a wonderful challenge. I think, uh, uh, as Ralph pointed out, the most exciting thing for all of us as scientists about the brain is that we can't predict what the future is. Uh, And we know that, for example, uh, 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 snakes have infrared sensors that can sense modalities that that we are unable to detect. Uh, uh, So I I think it's risky to (laughs) make a strong prediction here, but I'm looking forward very much to the future, and I'm counting on being here 20 or 30 years from now to see how it all turns out. (laughs) So there's... there's, Is there... uh, Ashley, are you saying... Somebody else have the microphone? Okay, we have, this is our, our last question here. Yes. Roger Green. Uh, so I see that Ray Kurzweil, under the auspices of Google, is now trying to figure out how to back up his brain. And I was wondering how that is feasible or relative to the things you're working on. Is it, within the, is it fiction? Or? Okay. I, uh, I could use a backup. I don't know. Can we all? This, is, this, this raises an issue that, that's relevant to the question you asked earlier about what, are we, what would we say to people um, to think about the brain that might be a general misunderstanding. I would say one of the major misunderstandings is that the brain is like a computer. The brain does not work in any sense at all. Zero, like a computer. Not even remotely like one. In some ways, it's vastly better. In other ways, it can't keep up. So with that, we all know a lot more on this topic than we did an hour ago. We have a lot more we'd like to keep learning. But for now, please join me in thanking our panelists and we bring on Mary. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.